the future. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. This series is about topics that are important to all of us. Food, housing, climate, health. Our guests are men and women ranging in age from their teens through their 90s. Some are national, even international experts in their field. Some you may have never heard of. In speaking with our guests so far, I've found numerous people of different generations who are working together in harmony and mutual respect. We look forward to introducing you to these people in this series. Please let us know whether this program enhances your appreciation of generations other than yours. Tell us what you think about the issues we discuss. You can reach us at lwitf22 at gmail.com. That's lwitf22 at gmail.com. Our next several episodes will deal with food, where it comes from, having too much or too little, and what is just right. Today, we're talking about food insecurity. Our guests are people who, when presented with problems, find solutions. The good news they have is that we know how to fix the problem. Our first two guests are Dr. Seligman, who is in her 40s, and Dr. Frank, who is in her 70s. Each is a nationally recognized expert in her respective field. They are colleagues, one working from San Francisco and the other from Boston, both founders of organizations targeted to improve the health of food-insecure individuals and families. Our guests don't only identify problems, they bring us solutions. I spoke with each of them over Zoom. What is food insecurity? Food insecurity is really strongly linked to poor health across just about every dimension. So everything we look at in terms of adverse health outcomes is basically associated with food insecurity. Now, how can that be that everything is associated with food insecurity? Well, it's because this is working in both directions. For many diseases, especially those diet-sensitive chronic diseases like obesity and diabetes and heart failure, dietary intakes that usually accompany sick can actually cause those diseases. What we also know, though, is that in the United States, people with a heavy burden of chronic illness, no matter what that illness is, are more likely to be food insecure. Why? Out-of-pocket medical expenses are really high, and that puts a lot of strain on the household budget. Spending a lot of time going to medical appointments rather than doing other things that might generate some extra income. These are things that push people with a high burden of chronic illness, especially older adults into food insecurity. So the arrow is going both ways. And in many households, it's like a cycle. As you get more ill, your risk for food insecurity goes up. And as your food insecurity gets more severe, you're more likely to, to have chronic illness. And once you get stuck in that circle, it's hard to get out of it. That's our first guest, Dr. Hilary Seligman. Now in her 40s, Dr. Seligman is an expert on food insecurity and its health implications through life. She's a professor at the University of California, San Francisco Medical School. She directs the Food Policy, Health, and Hunger Research Program at UCSF Center for Vulnerable Populations and the CDC's Nutrition and Obesity Policy Research and Evaluation Network. She also serves as Senior Medical Advisor for Feeding America. Dr. Seligman directs the National Clinical Scholars Program at UCSF School of Medicine. And if that isn't enough, she founded Eat SF, a healthy food voucher program for low-income residents of San Francisco. I asked Hillary how she came to work in the field of food insecurity. I was trained as a general internist, and my goal through medical school and residency was to become a primary care doctor. And I was frustrated through my training years and all of the training I was getting and how to help people change their health behaviors, but had this real recognition that none of it was really all that helpful because there's nothing you can say in a 10-minute visit that's really going to help people overcome all the challenges to healthy, let's say, physical activity and diet behaviors once you're back in your real life. And I had a patient one day who 
had a new diagnosis of prediabetes, and I was trying to help this patient to avoid developing diabetes over the coming years. And I was talking to him about what he eats every day, and he told me that every day for lunch, he ate uh, a piece of Spam between two cinnamon rolls. And that image was shocking enough to me that I really stopped everything I was doing and tried to understand what would cause somebody to eat a piece of Spam between cinnamon rolls every day for lunch. And what became clear was that he he spent about 25 cents on that lunch and he knew that lunch would fill him up and keep him full until the next day and he didn't have money for dinner. And I thought to myself, what can I say in this visit that will help this person to not develop diabetes over the next 10 years and realize that I had all kinds of fancy medications I could prescribe to him, but the real thing that he needed was access to food. And that really started my focus on food insecurity and its impact on health. According to the 2020 U.S. Census, 10.5% or about 35 million people in the U.S. don't have enough food to satisfy their dietary and nutritional needs. But to a large extent, food insecurity is invisible in this country. Our next guest, Dr. Deborah Frank, will tell us what food insecurity looks or doesn't look like in this country. Dr. Deborah Frank is professor of pediatrics at Boston University Medical School founding director of the Growth Clinic for Children at Boston Medical Center, and founder and principal investigator of Children's Health Watch, a network of pediatric and public health researchers who have been working to improve child health for more than four decades. Dr. Frank, what can you tell us about food insecurity? There's lots of it, but it's invisible. It's not children turn light green when they're hungry so that you can, you know, walk down the street and see it. And it's not like our kids, not like kids in uh, very impoverished countries where they lie around on street corners with no clothes on and you can count their ribs. Our kids are bundled to their noses. So it's not what we call an eyeball diagnosis. So it's up to the health providers to make it visible and also to educate people as to the health consequences and the child's learning consequences, which is what our research and a lot of other people's research showed, but wasn't widely understood. When I started, first of all, people didn't realize that hunger was a health issue. They thought it was an issue for charity or an issue of parental neglect. They didn't realize the health but they didn't realize that it is a tremendous insult to children's development, mental development, and to health. Dr. Seligman points out that it's hard to detect food insecurity in adults as well. One of the things that is important to understand about food insecurity is patients never present to the doctor saying, I'm struggling to make ends meet. I can't afford food for my family. That is never the way it comes to our attention. And so we really have to have our antenna up to think about this in all kinds of different other symptomatology. So, for example, poor academic performance among children, behavioral problems, stomach aches, headaches, uh, mental health, depression. All of these things are things that make us think to ourselves, there's a long list of things that can contribute to these symptoms, and food insecurity is one of them. So how do I engage the family in a conversation about what kind of food is going into the household? Now, that may be different among adolescents. You may see different kinds of behaviors. But again, an adolescent is not going to walk into their doctor and say there's not enough food in the house. And so we have learned to become very explicit in the way we ask patients. So, for example, I will say to a patient, I ask all of my patients about access to nutritious food. It's really important. That if you don't have access to nutritious food in your household, that we get you access to the benefits that are available to you in the community. And then we ask people, do you worry whether the food in your house is going to run out and you won't have money to get more? We ask people, has the food in your house run out and you haven't had money to get more? And we use that as a way to support people in referrals to whatever kinds of resources there are in the community. Our third guest, Jennifer Munoz, has worked community health at the local level and has worked internationally. After graduating from Vassar College, she joined the Peace Corps in the 1980s, where she worked in community health education in the Central African Republic. 
She obtained a degree in international relations and had other experiences before returning to work in community health in the northern Berkshires in Massachusetts, where she grew up. She compares her family circumstances when she was growing up, which she describes as fragile, to what she saw in the Central African Republic. If you looked at the people in your family, I'm sure nobody looked malnourished. No, I think American malnourishment looks different than international malnourishment that we often call to mind of children with bloated stomachs and really skinny arms and legs. American malnourishment often looks like obesity. It often looks like children having difficulty with concentrating in school or children sleeping in school. So American malnourishment might look a little bit different. It's a little bit harder to connect with food insecurity. CAR is one of the 10 poorest countries in the world. So there was widespread malnutrition and hunger and starvation. And it was very classically what you would imagine it to be. I went to a a feeding site for children who were at risk of dying from starvation. And it was very, very hard to see because to see that it happened among people that you know and families and it's very difficult to watch. As you have heard, although the ravages of food insecurity may not be visible in the States as they are in a country like the Central African Republic, it is present in all ages of our population. Dr. Seligman has worked on food insecurity among the older population. Food insecurity is very common among older adults, primarily because older adults are living on fixed incomes and a lot of federal benefits have not kept up with the cost of inflation and the amount it costs to afford basic necessities. At the same time, within older adults, we know that there are a lot of other barriers to healthy dietary intake that take resources. Your dentures don't work. It's more challenging to get to the grocery store. It's not safe to be at the grocery store. I don't have the energy to make home-cooked, prepared meals. There's all of these other barriers that when they happen with food insecurity, make access to healthy meals just that much more challenging. And so what we see in older adults is that food insecurity is common. It's very challenging to overcome because we have to both provide the resources for food, but also resources for all of these other barriers that I mentioned. But also that older adults who are food insecure and have all of these other barriers are much less likely to be able to remain in their own homes, community dwelling, and are much more likely to end up needing place in a community setting. Uh, And for quality of life issues, we can fix those challenges by providing better access to nutritious food and supporting people in institutions. Our guests have established that food insecurity is present throughout the population, even if it's not visible or recognized. When Dr. Frank started her practice in the 1980s and Dr. Seligman in the 2000s, the medical establishment did not recognize the connection between the health problems that these doctors were seeing and the fact that their patients may have been food insecure. After graduating from Harvard Medical School and after completing her internship and residency, Dr. Deborah Frank returned to Boston for her medical fellowship, where she worked with Dr. T. Barry Brasselton and Dr. Jennifer Rathbun. I was a fellow in child development, it was called, Dr. Brasselton at Boston Children's. He mentored you and made an introduction that set you on an interesting career trajectory. Dr. Jennifer Rathbun, who was a child psychiatrist, called him up and said, I need a pediatrician. I'm trying to organize a team to work with infants and young children with failure to thrive. I I learned from her how to build a team and how to make an interdisciplinary team work. And I just learned a lot about listening to families and working with nutritionists and social workers. That really did shape my career. And I started reading about failure to thrive and also the issues in getting these kids growing. And then the more I read, the more I realized that what in this country is called failure to thrive in the rest of the world is called malnutrition. And people knew a lot about it, how to triage it and how to treat it, although things changed. But when you got beyond the, the psychodynamic model for dealing with it, you realize that this is a disease. Dr. Rathborn was a psychiatrist. 
child psychiatrist. Was she involved in this issue? Because at that time, mothers were thought to be the the cause of the failure to thrive. I think her model was working with adolescent eating disorders. But definitely, I think it was thought to be a psychodynamic issue. But once you had a kid in that kind of condition, you had to have medical support, too. And so she said, look, I need a pediatrician. And she was right. And it was that kind of holistic approach. It isn't a mental health box or a medical box or a social work box or a doctor's box. It's a very complicated problem. And to solve it, you need people of very different skill sets working together with the family. And at that time, it was already recognized that a holistic approach was necessary. I give Dr. Rathburn credit for being the first one to recognize it. These kids were put actually on, on psychiatric wards, the babies, because that's how people understood it. Not that the kid was in psychiatric distress, but it must be the mother. The kid was little and clearly sick and often delayed, but that's sometimes how it was approached. So they put tiny babies in psychiatric wards? Only a few. Would it be justified in terms of what we know about uh, these issues today to have a psychiatric approach to this? Not a purely psychiatric approach, for sure. They understood about the need for interdisciplinary input, but I think the understanding of what we call now social determinants of health wasn't as clear. People just did not understand that there could be people in Boston, mind you, who were so poor that their economic stress was affecting the growth of the baby. And if it did, it was assumed to be that the, the mothers were neglectful and that it was their fault that they did not provide adequate nutrition and so forth for the kid. And the, the more you work with people, the more you... So that was nowhere near all to the story. At the start of her career in the 2000s, Hillary Seligman, too, found a gap. When you saw that gap between what the patient needed and what they were getting, I take it that you went and started to look for resources. Where did you look and what was available for you at the time that you started looking? At the time that started, I had been trained that the first thing you do is you go to the medical literature and you search for the studies that tell you what you're supposed to do. And the first thing I did is I went to the medical database and I searched for an article. I don't have enough money for food and prediabetes. One article came up in the medical literature. Now, this was 20 years ago, but a single article came up. And I realized that although we had talked about this issue a lot in the context of acute medical disease and severe malnutrition, there were so few physicians that were talking about what I later understood was the construct of food insecurity, but that wasn't even something that physicians knew anything about or understood that term. There was very little understanding that food insecurity was an issue of our generation as well. And then it had profound implications for the development of what I like to call diet-sensitive chronic disease. And the interesting thing about diet-sensitive chronic disease, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, is that these are the diseases that are causing the greatest morbidity and mortality in the United States. These are the diseases that kill people in the United States. And so the fact that nobody was talking about lack of access to nutritious food as a driver of poor health in the U.S., and particularly as a driver in health disparities, to me, as a real gap. Now, I'll say at the time, many mentors said to me, if this was something that was important, other people would be doing it. You are crazy to work on this. Nobody's going to pay for you to do it. But it was very clear to me that if my tools as a physician were only medications and did not include access to healthy food, I was always going to be climbing a, a road that was too steep that I couldn't meaningfully support people in preventing the development of obesity and diabetes if I didn't have access to anything but medication. So that was only 20 years ago, and the health food link was not in the forefront of people's minds at that time. People always understood that healthy food was important for you. What we didn't do is bring that knowledge into the healthcare arena. Our tools in healthcare are so focused and continue in many ways to be so focused 
on technology, the newest medication, and the treatment of acute illness. We have always struggled in this country, I think, to take a broader view, one that incorporates the need for prevention, and it uses really basic tools like food. These are constructs and concepts that did not really integrate themselves well within healthcare, although they did integrate themselves much better within public health. And I think that part of the challenge is that healthcare has been always enamored with the newest, best thing. And healthy diets are kind of boring. These are messages that are not new. These are messages that your mother gave you when you were two years old, that you should be eating your fruits and vegetables. So these are not things that get physicians really excited, and yet they're so critical for the health of our nation. And I don't think it's a coincidence that people have acknowledged this in during the same time period when we have realized as Americans that we need to take a little bit of a different view of health and healthcare in the United States and focus much more on what gets us the best quality. And that means moving upstream, doing a lot more work focusing on prevention. As in many other fields, medical knowledge changes over time. And in the 80s, the current practices did not serve to solve the problems that Dr. Frank was seeing, nor were the current practices working for Dr. Seligman's patients when she confronted them in the early 2000s. Both set out to find the cause and the solutions of their patients' problems. Part of the solution was in recognizing that food, housing, living conditions, social determinants of health had an important role to play in the causation and prevention of these health problems that they saw. First, Dr. Frank, at what point did you start screening for the social determinants of health? Or was it recognized that there were social determinants of health? Not standardized. The food insecurity scale didn't come out until 1998. Now, there are people doing stuff before that. In fact, we did one study before that using what was called the CHIP scale. And this was the childhood hunger scale. When we were working in the ER, all we wanted to do was count off how many underweight kids there were so we knew how many we had that services for. I mean, we were really not trying to do anything revolutionary or fancy, but we interviewed people and somebody suggested that we try using the CHIP scale. So we did. That's when it really, the penny started to drop. And then what happened next was welfare reform. And by that point, there were a number of multidisciplinary groups around the country working on this. And Share Our Strengths got us all together for a sort of best practice sharing. Late 90s, we were all saying, what is going to happen to our patient families with this cutting everybody off of welfare? And what can we do about it? That's more to the point. Doctors are very practical in general. We're not very theoretical. So what do we do? And Billy Shore, who at that time was head of Share Our Strengths, said, you could put your heads together and document it. And so we decided to do that. We started what was then called CSNAP, that's now called Children's Health Watch, where, again, we worked mainly in emergency rooms because the other work that had been done had been done with kids already getting services of some sort. And because we were clinicians, we knew that the kids who were getting lost were the ones showing up in the emergency rooms because they would show up there when they were very sick, even if they didn't show up anywhere else. And so we started again interviewing moms or caregivers in the emergency room and getting the weight of the kid off the ER chart. And we was just as the food insecurity scale was being released. And that's when we started to get really formal documentation of food insecurity. And then I had a colleague whose name, Dr. Megan Sandel, who's now the, one of the two heads of the Grove Clinic, who'd been working all this time in healthcare for the whole month. And I asked her, would she come work in the clinic? And she said, well, I don't know much about hunger. I know a lot about homelessness. And I said, well, those are the twin demons that are affecting our kids. And so working with her, I learned a lot about homelessness and horrible living conditions, even if you weren't homeless. And what she taught me was rent eats first, that people know that being out on the street or not paying your heating bill, that's the other big one, energy insecurity, will do your kid in much quicker than not eating. And for poor people, the only fungible part of their budget is their food budget. And so that's when I gradually came to understand the interconnections between what are called the social determinants of health. 
Did your clinic grow to encompass the rent and housing issues? We connected people, thanks to Dr. Sandel, with the insufficient resources to get people into waiting lists for housing. I worked with Joe Kennedy the third, because at that point he had a low-cost energy program going. So we built connections. We didn't do it ourselves, but we built connections to get services for our patients. And at first, we we just asked in the ER about food insecurity, but very quickly we realized we had to ask about other things, like housing insecurity and energy insecurity. Dr. Seligman describes how food insecurity came to be recognized as a factor in her patient's health. When you started out then doing this research, did you find that people were willing to support it and then were interested in moving forward? Uh, I will say it was an uphill battle in the beginning, but that the Obamacare Affordable Care Act legislation really pushed everyone within healthcare to think about social determinants of health. And food insecurity is one of those social determinants of health that is so clearly and linearly linked to health outcomes. Access to better food leads to better dietary intake, leads to better health outcomes. That's been a social determinant of health that has been really easy for healthcare organizations to sign on to because it's so clear. And so I think a couple of things have happened. One, I think a lot more women in medicine have enabled us to start talking about things that happen in the kitchen and the construct in tandem with all of the research we do as something that's valuable and important for health and healthcare. I think the focus on social determinants of health has helped this dynamic happen or this conversation to start happening. And I also think that we have broken down some of the silos between public health and healthcare. And we have realized that those two always have had to be really well integrated in order to do the best good for the most number of people. And this is one of these areas where I think public health and healthcare have to very much be on the same page because we need all of these sectors at the table in order to make sure that people have access to healthy food. When Jennifer Munoz started work at the North Adams Regional Hospital in 2007, Target Hunger had just begun to address the decades-long poverty and food insecurity in the area, which had been caused by the loss of manufacturing jobs and manufacturers. Did you initiate the Target Hunger program? Were you hired to run it? I didn't initiate it, but it was just a coincidence that in late 2006, the Food Bank of Western Mass received money to do prevention program to help increase food security in addition to the emergency food production that they typically do. They had been working in our community trying to find who would be the partners for the community conversation and for the work of Target Hunger. And the hospital was obviously a healthcare provider, and that was of interest to have them be part of the conversation. About four months after Target Hunger started in our community, that's when I had my job at the hospital and jumped on board with Target Hunger. So I was probably one of the primary anchor participants initially. So the concept of Target Hunger was to have a community conversation and find out what were the gaps because we knew that doctors were seeing and pediatricians were seeing people who were not having good nutrition. We wanted to find out what was going on. We had everything from social service agencies to the school, to the hospital, to individuals, the churches, uh, local businesses, youth services like youth centers and uh, youth programs through churches. We had pretty much everybody at the table. So we were trying to find out, in addition to providing emergency food to families, what could we do? to help improve food security. I, I did hear at a conference one time, and I, I wanted to say this, food doesn't solve hunger. The food insecurity, at least in North Berkshire County, is due to poverty. In working with the organizations, 
at that point, there was about 20% poverty level mm-hmm. in Northern Berkshires, and, and there still is. So yeah. from 2007 mm-hmm. to 2022, despite all the effort, mm-hmm. what happened? It hasn't moved the needle. So there's a few different things that happen. One of the things that happened, you might re- recall, is the Great Recession it challenged a lot of families who are maybe on the edge. And one of the things that we do know is people who are receiving services for food insecurity, if they are able to get better jobs, a lot of times those services evaporate immediately. There's no transition phase, and that's called the cliff. And what happens is is people discover that actually they can provide less well for their families than they could before when they received services. And so it's a really terrible situation that people who are trying, maybe retraining, re-education, reskilling, they're trying to create a better future. The sad reality is oftentimes it makes economic and food security sense for them to give that up and go back and use services. And that's because the jobs available in this area are, are such low-wage jobs. Partly that. There's not a lot of jobs. The jobs can be low-wage jobs. They can be inconvenient. A lot of jobs are swing shifts or shifts that are not supportive of family life. If someone should have kids in school, people get called in at odd hours or they have too few hours to get health insurance or other benefits that are also important to a family. When families fall off the cliff, it's difficult, I think, for them to also to keep their momentum for moving their family forward in a positive, stable fashion. They're trying to make the best decisions they can for their families, but it feels like a defeat for a lot of folks when they have to stop that process and go back. And this has happened in generation after generation. Sure. Deborah Frank saw children and families falling off the cliff and set out to do something about it. Having had the models of Dr. Brassels and Dr. Radswin, I started an inpatient team with nutrition and social work and nursing. And then what happened is as kids went over to the hospital and they came back for follow-up, they had relapsed. And so it was like, oh. And then Reagan came in and I started seeing kids where you could very clearly the deterioration in their growth to an implementation of one of Reagan's policies. And the one I remember most is when he decided that which is just the opposite now, but he decided that adolescent mothers living with their own mothers couldn't get food stamps. So you suddenly took this whole huge chunk of the food budget out of the family. This young mom bought her kid in, who I'd been following for two months, and he was, had been starting to get better. He'd never been in the hospital, and he was really cranky, and she was smacking him in front of the doctor. She said, something's really wrong. And I said, hey, cut that out. What's going on? And after I poked for a couple of minutes, she said that neither she or the kid had had anything to eat for more than 24 hours because of the thing. So, you know, no wonder they were crabby. So I went off and got an envelope and wrote on it emergency fund and put $5 in it and told her to go down to the cafeteria and get something to eat. And then we would talk about it. I also had a kid admitted to Boston City who was a child with a tube in his stomach and he was doing awful. And again, I sat down to talk to the mom and what was she feeding him or what was she putting through the tube? She was putting dilute Campbell's soup, couldn't afford anything better. And it wasn't she was neglecting him. And it's not easy to care for a kid with a tube coming out of his tummy. He was actually a very sweet kid. She clearly loved him to pieces. But that's why he wasn't growing. And then there was one other story, actually, that a child where we had a primary a growth kid from their primary care doctor. And boom, boom, I got to age two and I'm wango. The growth went off. And, and it wasn't me. It was the nutritionist talking to mom about, wait a minute, what happened? And she said he got cut off Wick because he was too healthy. We don't have milk to drink, which was what they were doing in those days because Wick was inadequately funded so that they were pushing a lot of kids off. They Even though Wick is funded for till age five at age two, so they could use the resources for another kid. And those three stories together got me so flaming angry. And I think that's why I called up Washington. On her way to educating Washington. Dr. Frank reached out to Massachusetts politicians. Chet Atkins, who was head of Senate Ways and Means in Massachusetts, called up the public health department and said, are there really malnourished kids in Massachusetts? 
And the public health people said, give us some money, we'll go find out. And they did and blew people away that they found that about 10% of the low-income children who were in programs, not the ones who hadn't been reached, had a stigma of malnutrition. And that's when the mass nutrition line item came into being and Massachusetts became the first state. And they really were very smart. They asked us about that. I had some other, me and some of my colleagues and if we said treatment is great, but you've got to have prevention. And Massachusetts became the first state to put state money into the Women, Infant, Children program, supplemental feeding program uh, in the whole country. And they also funded a statewide network of failure to thrive clinics, of which I had one at Boston City, now Boston Medical Center, which is still growing, still going. In one of the many awards and honors Dr. Frank has received, the announcement for her 2015 Changing the Equation Award gave her credit as the woman who saved snacks, formerly known as food stamps, following the 2008 Farm Bill negotiations where she led Children's Health Watch, an organization she founded in bringing a health perspective to legislative debate by showing that food stamps improve health. You're listening to Living Well into the Future. As we have heard, in addition to being the founder of Children's Health Watch, Dr. Frank was the founding director of the Failure to Thrive Clinic, which she began in 1984 at Boston City Hospital. It is now called the Grow Clinic, and it's at the Boston Medical Center. We depend very much on the hospital resources. We raise money specifically for the salaries of the people who are the clinic, but the hospital gives us space and nursing support and flu shots, and we're right up there with the, the primary care people, and we're on the same floor of the operation, and we do a lot of back and forth. In 2015, Dr. Seligman founded Vouchers for Veggies, EDSF. It responded to the need that she saw in her patients who wanted to have a healthier diet but couldn't afford it. Vouchers for Veggies is what is broadly called in the U.S. now a POTUS prescription program. And this is a model that didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago. But essentially what the POTUS prescription model says is physicians and local municipalities and states should be able to provide people with access to fruits and vegetables through a paper voucher, or we now often use a debit card. But the theory is the same, that we can give you, for example, in our program, $10 a week in access to fruits and vegetables, and that should better support your health. What we see is that people who are enrolled in one of our fruit and vegetable voucher programs reports being less food insecure and more healthy and consumers of more fruits and vegetables, about one serving of fruits and vegetables additionally per day than people who are not using our fruit and vegetable vouchers. And this model is being taken up all over the country. There are produce subscription programs all over the country. And the USDA even has a very large program now called the Gus Dumacher Nutrition Incentive Program to support the development of produce prescription programs across the U.S. Jennifer Munoz was part of the solution. In 2007, when she was working for the Target Hunger Project, she anchored the Community Gardens Program and continues to spearhead it to this day. Jennifer, could you tell me about where the gardens are and what the status is? Sure. We started out with two subsidized neighborhoods in North Adams, and these are teaching gardens. They're not farms. They're not meant to provide vast amounts of food. They're basically nutrition education and to really familiarize people with where the food comes from and what fresh food looks like and what it tastes like. Because what we were discovering was a lot of folks had had no access to fresh produce. And so they weren't choosing them at the market or at the pantry or as giveaways, even if they had the opportunity to, because they just didn't know what they were. They didn't know if they liked them. They didn't know what to do with them. Started out in two subsidized neighborhoods in North Adams. Subsidized neighborhoods, you've explained that's where people get housing subsidized for them. They get housing subsidies either because of low income or disability. A lot of elders receive subsidies or to live in certain locations in North Adams because of their poverty and their limited income. So I chose those 
neighborhoods in particular because I knew there was a high concentration of folks who were likely to be in food insecure and were using the SNAP benefits, were using free meals, were using other sorts of opportunities to feed their families. So it, it just seemed to make sense. And because what I discovered in a lot of those neighborhoods, people hadn't ever grown their own food. They didn't have parents that grew their own food and maybe didn't even have grandparents that grew their own food. So the knowledge about fresh food, what it looks like, what parts you eat of the plant, what parts you don't eat of the plant, what can you eat fresh, what do you have to cook first? All of that lore that happens when you grow your own food, we had to restart teaching people about. Now, you surprised me when you told me that not only did people not recognize the food, but that generally many of these people don't know how to cook. I think it's uh, very common for a lot of people in the past couple generations who just don't know how to cook. We have microwaves, we have takeout, we have fast food, we have stuff you just open a bag, crackers, you just open a bag. So a lot of people, not just folks in subsidized neighborhoods, but a lot of folks don't know how to cook anymore. It's a big thing during the pandemic. You may have heard people are learning how to cook. It, it never occurred to me that they actually did not know how to cook. You are also doing a program in the schools. Yep, it's all part of the same um, concept. So when I have a garden program in the neighborhoods, the food that we grow together there is to be shared with the people who live in that neighborhood. For the school gardens, we just realized the schools have lots of property. And very compatible with the school is nutrition education done in a garden and environmental education done in a garden and science, math, vocabulary, all kinds of social emotional stuff like taking turns and being patient and following three-part instructions, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. A garden is really a fantastic outdoor classroom. And while we do not use the food from the school gardens in the school cafeterias because of different legal and barriers, we actually donate the food from the school gardens to a free meal program in North Adams called the Berkshire Food Project. So we are able to get all the nutrition from the school gardens and still our benefit happens to often the parents or the aunts and uncles or the older siblings to the kids who are growing the food in the school gardens. The Grug Clinic, the Children's Health Watch, Feeding America, Vouchers for Veggies, and the Community Garden Program all are part of the solution, but there's a long way to go. And Dr. Frank describes where we are now. First of all, the programs run partly on philanthropy. And so we're always rounding, which is a similar way of running run a railroad. You wouldn't have people running around having medicine drives in, in Sunday schools, you know, to treat pneumonia. You, so we, we do, we're always collecting food, collecting clothes, asking for money, writing grants, chatting people up. I think it's what the, really clear to me the longer I work with this and I learn from the other people is this is not a matter of either lack of financial resources in this country or a lack of expertise. We're not like a, a country where we can't get food to starving people because the food is rotting in warehouses or people are hijacking the trucks or we have to send the food across the ocean. We have plenty of resources and know-how. So it's all a matter of political will. And whether this is going to get better or get worse is really a, a policy choice and a value choice for Americans. It's, it's not anything magic or mystical. When I started, first of all, people didn't realize that hunger was a health issue. But especially early, hunger is a health issue, which is Dr. Seligman's too. Food is medicine. And that was not taken for granted or even thought. Of. So two things that people didn't get was, first of all, it's travel. They didn't realize the health cost. They said, oh, how pitiful. But they didn't realize that it is a tremendous insult to children's development, mental development, and to health. And so I guess one of my <laughs> repeated lines through my entire career, but especially early, is there is a health issue, which is Dr. Seligman's too. Food is medicine. And that was not taken for granted. We, well, one of the mottos is from the front line of pediatric care is we're all clinicians. And so we not only have stories and experiences and every number has a name and a face to us. And so the people think it's an anecdote. So you say, okay, it's an anecdote, but let's look at it happened when we look at 10,000 children and how common this is and how, that's I think what's, it's timeliness, it's focus on young kids 
and it's action-oriented research. The other thing we started asking about is what helps. And the answer is, well, and because part of the party line was the war on poverty was lost. These programs don't do any good. And we were able to show, and forget lots of other people, that what I often say is these programs, especially food stamps, SNAP, is good medicine with doses too low. Because we were able to show, you know, our, our thousands of little kids that if a family got WIC and food stamps, it was less likely that the kid would be underweight than if they didn't. And if they got cut off, you could see a kid become underweight. One of the things that Hillary Seligman indicated was that the programs during the first years of the pandemic have had a demonstrable effect on the health of the children. That were, yeah, food insecurity for sure. Yeah. Trouble is that they were all designed to sundown, and and you can see what happened. Like what we're going to see now is with the withdrawal of the child tax credit. We saw, and one of my young colleagues has published with a whole bunch of other people's paper saying when the first installment of the child tax credit arrived back in July, food insecurity in families with children went down. It's now been withdrawn, and I guarantee if we continue to look, we will see food insecurity and all its health implications come right back. It's so stupid. And that has long-range implications in terms of the cost to the health care system, does it not? Definitely. First of all, COVID rates are higher in communities with high food insecurity. But secondly, just any health problem you can name practically is made worse by food insecurity, both in children and adults. And they're more kids who are in food insecure families are more likely to be hospitalized. If they're babies, once they get in the hospital, they're more likely to have a longer stay. They're more likely to be sick, to miss school when they're older. And they're also more likely not to reach their developmental potential. They're all dots that we've been able to connect. Not just apocryphal. This is actually demonstrable. How has the work that you did with the Grove Clinic affected the families? Does the treatment of the child enhance the conditions for the families? I think you've got to enhance the conditions for the family so the child can get better. Every story is different. People taking care of chronically ill relatives who aren't getting services, people who aren't getting child care, people who aren't in programs, people who are about to be evicted if you can't head it off. And you can't help a child recover unless you can help the family stabilize and the goal is not just stabilize, not just survive, but thrive is the current catchword. And families and young children are an organic unit. You have to take care of all of it at once. And that's quite an undertaking that you have. Yes, it requires all kinds of different skill sets and a multidisciplinary team. Dr. Frank has worked at the state and federal level to obtain resources to provide the best possible results for her patients. Dr. Seligman works on public policy from the perspective of public health and the individual medical practice. The public health orientation to my work is really about how do we better bring the principles of prevention and population health and better health for all into an a healthcare environment where the focus has always been, how do I maximize the health of the patients in front of me? Those are both important. How we maximize the health of our nation and how we maximize the health of the person in front of us. But we have to be clear that there's some tension there. And sometimes what's best for your patient isn't what's best for population health. Sometimes what's best for population health isn't best for the patient. And so we have really important issues to think about, both as healthcare providers and as people who care about the health of the public more broadly. Are, are there any policies that you are working on now that will reduce the problems for, for families who are food insecure? It's a great question because one of the things we're talking about a lot right now is what happened to food insecurity rates during the initial year of the pandemic. And if you are like most people, you probably saw a real national conversation about skyrocketing food insecurity rates. 
And yet when the national numbers, the official numbers for the U.S. came out for 2020, what we saw is that food insecurity rates stayed almost exactly stable. And so what was really happening there? And I explain that this way. Food insecurity rates could have gone up extraordinarily because there was an enormous um, economic recession that we all know about. And yet they didn't. And what this means, I think, is that the policies and programs that we rapidly put into place during the initial months of the pandemic worked. So what is it that worked? Those checks that went out to people in the mail, most of those checks for low-income households went towards food. The charitable food system that ramped up skyrocketed its distribution of food overnight. Those programs worked. The distribution of food boxes from the USDA directly to households, the delivery of school meals to kids on the school buses so that they had school meals even when they weren't going home. These policies worked. And I think one of the important things that we have to realize is coming out of the pandemic, hopefully soon, is that we know how to solve food insecurity in the U.S. This is not an unsolvable problem. What we lack is the political will to do it and the desire to put the necessary money behind it. What's also clear to me, though, is that if we were able to generate that political will and the money to do it, we would come out on the other end healthier and stronger, and it would be a wise investment. We just need to generate that money and that political will. Dr. Frank and Seligman advise us that we as a nation know how to solve the problem of food insecurity. What do you think? Can we muster the political will to enable a healthier future for all? What will it take? In the meantime, if you want to find out more about our guests and the nonprofits we've discussed, you can get more information at the Berkshire Ollie website. That's BerkshireOlli.org. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Hilary Seligman, Dr. Deborah Frank, and Jennifer Munoz. You can find more information about their organizations and how to support them on the Berkshire Ali website. You'll find this and future episodes of Living Well into the Future, LWITF for short, on WTBR 89.7 FM, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. Our thanks from me, Julie B. Adler, to our partner, Berkshire Ali, and its changing aging special interest group, Fran Weinberg, Alan Costin, Dale Borman Fink, Lucy Kennedy, and our intern, Ashley Delorado. Our music is by Michael Koppenheffer. Our graphics are by Gene Rosso. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and not of W. WTBR, Berkshire Ali, or the LWITF production team.